0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education, or any field, from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're going to talk about aggregating best practices. Learning outside the sector, we're going to get some coaching from a teacher, or rather get taught by a coach. Now I'm a little confused, and it's a good thing we're here today with Atua Gawande, whose proper intro would take up our whole ten minutes. So in summary, he's a surgeon, a professor, a writer, prolific on all accounts, author of books like Better and The Checklist Manifesto, and our guest today. Welcome, Dr. Gawande. Thanks for having me. So in about 30 minutes, you're going to walk into a room full of educators and talk coaching and teaching, two words that really drum up some very specific imagery. How do you break things down?
1: Well, I didn't understand the difference, but it um, was for me something that, uh, got sharpened and, and and clear to me as we started trying to think about in our own research group and even in my own practice how I get really good at what I do in surgery. And what I realized is that um, we have a very specific model of how we train surgeons. And the answer is that you spend a long time in school. <laughs> uh, and you are uh, training for uh, four years of medical school. You then go through uh, eight years my case of surgical training and then you're kind of cut loose and it's the traditional pedagogical model model that you you know you have some continuing education you go to conventions and things like that but you pretty much learn on your own after you've been cut loose it's the same way that lots of people learn so in music school juilliard um, that's how they teach musicians you get your thousands of hours of practice you get um close, hands-on teaching, and then you're cut loose. And it's not as if you're expected to be perfect at that point, but you are believed to be good enough to improve on your own. And so if Itzhak Perlman was going to become the world's greatest violinist, it's because he was prepared at a young age coming out of Juilliard and then could improve the rest of the way himself. And that's the philosophy we had in surgery. That's a stark contrast to how athletes are seen. To um, the people in the world level performance class, the idea that you as an athlete are gonna improve on your own all the way to the point of becoming the best in the world um, and then staying there is seen as naive. Rafael, Rafael Nadal, Djokovic, these are folks who got to number one with a coach, and then needed to continue to be coached all the way through, it's seen as part of their career, that the learning not just never stops, but that the actual hands-on, somebody looking over, tapping you on the shoulder, teaching, that, that this is the way it, that this needs to be done. Fictionally,
0: and, I'm thinking of the Rocky movies. <laughs> exactly, yes.
1: So these are starkly contrasting views of education and how we're supposed to make it go in the world and um, uh, and as we confront questions like how are teachers supposed to improve when the most important thing for students as i'm learning turns out to be how effective the teachers they have are for patients how effective their teams are for um, lots of lines of work uh, and performance that there's this problem which is under conditions of complexity which is what teaching is, which is what medicine is which is what um, uh, certain kinds of music and so on are there's really wide differences in performance between the, the great and the not so great and it turns out to make a huge difference. The public wants to close that gap and so the puzzle is do we just teach more at the front end? Do we teach better at the front end? How do we raise up at that end? Or is the model wrong and do we need coaching?
0: Yeah, and, and I'm curious the structure, too, for teachers. I know teachers, they'll go and they'll look at their master's degree and then they'll do extra credits, and then there's this thing called professional development, and then there's sort of this peer review process where teachers kind of sit, sit in on other teachers. I mean, how uh, I'm assuming you're researching now a lot of this. How is professional development different than coaching, or, or what can professional development learn from coaching?
1: And, well, we have a version of that in medicine as well. So, you know, the um, there is some grading of how I do as a, as a surgeon. But for the most part, people don't come into, people never come to my operating room and take a look and see how I really do. There's some external measures, the equivalent of, you know, the student tests, you know, patient satisfaction scores. And when um, I've started digging in understanding and teaching how that goes, that's been the more common model, is nothing like folks who are really coming in and watching how you do. Um, it's uh, something that um, I think is very interesting because uh, I'm seeing more and more evidence that people think this has to change. On the simplest level, um, when I talked to top musicians, I called Itzhak Perlman, and he returned my phone call. Um, you, to, you are a MacArthur fellow. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to Renee Fleming, the opera singer, and the story at that very top level is that they feel they needed coaches to get all the way to where they got. Itzhak Perlman said, I don't know why most violinists do not have a coach, but I did all through my career. Turned out his wife was a concert-level violinist and played this role of being his external eyes and ears, hearing what he wasn't quite doing as well as he could and putting that little added pressure on him to l- figure out the, the pathway to doing better. and." Um, And what we're starting to see in just ordinary life is that taking professional development one step further to actual weekly coaching um, is something that's emerging. Um, You guys who are listening probably know much more about it than I do. But for me, it was a fascination. More than 100 districts around the country where teachers are offered weekly coaching, someone coming in, watching them teach, being able to have some eyeball on their performance work on goals to recognize what the novice teacher needs to do better what the middle level teacher could be working on what the senior level teacher needs to just avoid burning out at that stage of the game Um, and uh, and that seemed completely both foreign to me and um, and really important to think about for uh, something like medicine
0: How does someone become a good coach? How do you teach coaching? I think of Renee Fleming, and she would be a fantastic opera coach to me if I were studying opera, but I'm sure she also has a coach too. So is there ever a point when you transition from being coached to now the new coach of the younger generation, and how does that transition occur, and how do you learn to be a coach from having had a good coach? Is there a pedagogical sort of process to learn coaching rather than to learn teaching?
1: So it's quite unclear, and I don't think very well studied... That's your next book. (laughs) I don't think very well studied at all. Um, One thing is clear. uh, Being great at what you do doesn't necessarily make you a great coach. Think about many basketball coaches, some of the best basketball coaches. Some of them were star um, athletes, Phil Jackson um, and others. Others were... Not at all, and you wonder how the heck they got in that game in the first place. You know, Jeff Van Gundy looks to be, you know, half the height of the players that he's coaching. Um, And I think that that can be the case in lots of lines of our work as well. But, um, you know, there was a a sort of foundational set of studies that brought this home to me that came out of teaching. Um, In the 80s in California, uh, a researcher named Bush uh, had done a, uh, a trial where he looked at the traditional way of teaching um, teachers. They'd be brought for a conference, they'd be given some new skill, work on um, uh, some new skills for teaching English or math. They would be, they'd, they'd workshop it. They might even do some, uh, um, some role playing and, and practice with it. And then they would go home and give it a try. Six months later when they circled back, less than 15% of the teachers were actually using the skills that they learned somewhere along the way they'd given up or never even gotten started. When they provided coaching to another group of teachers, though, went through the same workshop, but this time someone would visit them just even a couple of times to be able to um, uh, offer some tips and pointers and when they've hit struggles, help answer questions, more than 85 percent of the teachers used those skills. what I um, see when that happens is that it's done with a certain intention in mind. If that coach went in, who's just uh, just as a way to grade this person's performance and you know feed it to the superintendent of the schools, um, they're seen as some kind of spy rather than someone who's there to help them improve their expertise. A um, coach for a team, though, is there to help them win, <laughs> help them get to the best possible performance. And, um, uh, and people seem to take that as part of the p- package when it's successful. And it seems to me that's crucial, that it's unlikely to be successful if um, this is seen as a foreigner coming into your classroom or into my operating room uh, there to police me rather than there to coach
0: me. You know, we love sort of breaking down silos in education and learning from the business communities and the medical communities and things like that. And you sort of do that through all your books and a lot of what you do in terms of research. And at Harvard, you're teaching at two different schools. You're still an active surgeon who's performed on many members of the HTC community who love <laughs> you for that. So we have a special place in our heart for that. But uh, when did you start to think sort of collaboratively across the sectors about promoting high performance, not just in your field of interest, but in all fields?
1: Well, I mean, number one, um,
0: I don't... You could, you could have just stopped and been like the best surgeon in the world <laughs> and not said, oh, I'm going to be a great author too, and I'm going to try and share this with the world.
1: Well, but I don't think I could have learned how to be really good. I mean, it, it, this all came out of, um, you know, the most simple kind of desire. I started writing as a resident in training. I was trying to learn how I might become as good a surgeon as I could be. And what I found, the answers were not coming from the textbooks. Not necessarily from the kind of formal teaching I was getting. A lot of it was the informal teaching of colleagues helping me understand how you deal with your mistakes because you could hurt people. You did hurt people. Um, and then the recognition that came from a few people who I really see as mentors but, but helped me understand, um, there are folks in medicine like Lucian Leap and Don Berwick who are already looking outside of that out of out of our medical community, because what they recognized was we were not as successful in dealing with failures as many other sectors of the world were that de- dealt with high risk and high failure. And, uh, you know, Lucian Leap had me start thinking about looking at the aviation world. And then as we entered a World Health Organization project to try to reduce deaths in surgery, I looked at how skyscraper construction worked. And when we reached the point where we had found we had Um, some real solutions that made a difference. For example, a a checklist that we would ask surgeons to use and when they used it with their teams, they cut the death rates from surgery 47 percent on average. I mean, it was a bigger impact than any drug or device and yet it didn't move out into the world nearly as swiftly as I thought it would. And uh, what I needed to learn was, well, how do you teach this? And so I started meeting teachers <laughs> and and understanding, you know, how do you teach a seventh grader who does not want to learn math? Okay, I got to teach surgeons who do not want to use a checklist. So what are you doing and how does that work? And uh, I met um, through a family member. Um, uh, actually, it's my cousin who's a coach in Southern Virginia. Um, he'd been a teacher for seven, eight years of, in history, and his school district adopted coaching. He was a baseball coach on the team and he thought, all right, I'd like that. And, uh, and the next thing you know, I'm hearing the stories of, of how he gets teachers to recognize what, what needs to be on their checklist. And, uh, and it just felt like our worlds were developing in parallel. We're both trying to do incredibly complex things that matter enormously to people's lives. There is knowledge of what the positive deviants do, as I call them, the people who are at the top of the curve getting better results than everybody else. Um, But we have not shared that knowledge. We've not simplified it and made it transmissible and then haven't taught it. And I think the pieces that start to come together are things as simple as checklists and as as human as coaching.
0: Last question uh, to all the teachers who are listening and the parents who have children in schools, and they really are jazzed by this idea of coaching, and their school doesn't have it, you know, part of their curriculum or part of their sort of uh, ecosystem. Uh, how does coaching break into a school district? H- how do you get enough support behind, and, and, and then how do you even, how do you promote the the nuances of coaching compared to teaching, and how does it break in?
1: So the only thing I can tell you is is that from the from the place I v- visited, for example, the school in Albemarle County, Virginia, um, where uh, John Hobson, this cousin of my wife's, works, I could see how it came in. And the answer was, it's very difficult to come in if you're a lone teacher trying to make it happen, and it's very difficult to make it come in if you're a lone principal. <laughs> um, and But what they had was a recognition that there was... Um, opportunities to do better than they currently were. There was um, enough of a coalition of teachers that could come together to try to supplant the idea. They had a crisis on their hands because of a budget problem and they used the crisis to say we need to handle this budget problem in a way that also ensures we're teaching more effectively over time. And this was the reason that they embraced it. Um, they had some tools available. There's a guy named Jim Knight, for example, who uh, leads a center for coaching at the University of Kansas. Um, he's, hard, he's not the only one, but, but they had, uh, he's from, from a couple of books he's had to um, uh, tools available online, ways of walking through how to take the first step, make it work in one school, eventually get it to all of your districts. I mean, all of the um, schools in the district and, uh, and, you know, now close to 200 school districts from what I understand have adopted it so that there's experience out there. Um, the very first thing I would do is I'd pick up the phone and call one of them up <laughs> and ask them, how did you do this? Because that probably will tell you a heck of a lot more than spending hours and hours trying to read about it.
0: And for those interested in your work that you have a website they can go to?
1: I do. It's gawande.com, G-A-W-A-N-D-E.com. The article um, that we're talking about called Personal Best is on there
0: as well. Atul Gawande, uh, surgeon check, professor check, writer check, great podcast guest, big check. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. the Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.